Hello. Welcome to the Bore You to Sleep podcast. The podcast that will hopefully help you get to sleep. I am going to read an open source book, one that is not particularly interesting, but one that is hopefully boring enough to get you to sleep. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Tonight's rating comes from... Plums of New York, published in 1911 and written by U.P. Hedrick. This story looks at plums, its industry and considerations during the early 1900s. My name is Teddy, and I aim to help people everywhere get a good night's rest. Sleep is so important, and my mission is to help you get the rest that you need. The podcast is designed to play in the background while you slowly fall asleep. Thank you to everyone who has shared their words of gratitude with me over the past few weeks, whether it be through the website or your podcast app. One of the most rewarding aspects of this podcast is hearing from all of the listeners who found the podcast beneficial. Firstly, a big thank you to three listeners who have become patrons on Patreon over the past few weeks. Shannon DeSantis and Laurel Bowman, thank you each for your monthly $5 patronage. And also to Patrick Monaghan, thank you for your $7.50 per month patronage. Of course... Thank you to all supporters currently on Patreon, as it's your support that allows me to keep bringing out episodes for those who need them. A special note to David Johnson for reaching out to say hello via the website. If you would like to support the podcast, you are always welcome to do so at the boytosleep.com website. To other listeners who contacted me via the website, Anna Texera, thank you for your kind words. Michelle Gina Plays, thank you for your kind words also. And thank you to all the Spotify listeners, as always, who take the time to leave a review or response in the episode Q&A. Your responses are so helpful which is why I post them publicly as soon as I see them. Finally, thank you to those who left a review on iTunes. Madikin MD from Kazakhstan and Monica and Patrick from Canada. Thank you and thank you for your kind words. If you find the podcast beneficial and would like to allow it to be shared with more people, Please be sure to subscribe the podcast and leave a review or comment in your podcast app. Even one sentence really helps out. And if you would like to say hello to me, 
you can do that at boytosleep.com. In the meantime, lie back, relax, and enjoy the readings. The Plums of New York Report of the New York Agricultural Experiment Station for the year 1910, Part 2 New York Agricultural Experiment Station, Geneva, New York, December 31st, 1910 To the Honourable Board of Control of the New York Agricultural Experiment Station I have the honour to transmit herewith Part 2 of the report of this institution for the year 1910 to be known as the Plums of New York. This constitutes the third in the series of fruit publications that is being prepared under your authority. The data embodied in the volume are the results of long-continued studies and observations at this institution as well as throughout the state, to which has been added a large amount of information that commercial plum growers have very kindly furnished. The attempt has been made to produce a monograph, including all the cultivated plums, and it is hoped that the result will be recognised as a worthy advance in the literature of this class of fruits. Preface The Plums of New York is the third monograph of the fruits of this region, published by the New York Agricultural Experiment Station. The aims of these books have been stated in full in The Grapes of New York, but it is considered best to restate some of these briefly and to indicate some features in which the book on plums differs from the one on grapes. Broadly speaking, the aim has been to make the plums of New York a record of our present knowledge of cultivated plums. The book has been written for New York, but its contents are so general in character that the work applies to the whole country and more or less to the world. The first chapter is a historical account and a botanical classification of plums. The second, a discussion of the present status of plum growing in America, while the third and fourth are devoted to varieties of plums. The first and last two of these chapters contain the synonymy and bibliography of the species and varieties of plums. In the footnotes running through the book, biographical sketches are given of the persons who have contributed most to plum culture in America. Here may be found also matters pertaining to plums not properly included in the text but necessary for its best understanding. Important varieties, so considered from various standpoints, with the bark and the flowers of several species, are illustrated in colours. The Plums of New York is a horticultural and not a botanical work. 
but in a study of the fruit from a horticultural standpoint, one must, of necessity, consider botanical relationships. It is hoped that in this enforced, systematic study of plums, however, something has been added to the botanical knowledge of this fruit. In classifying the varieties and species, to show their characters and relationships, the author has chosen to dispose of the groups in accordance with his own views, though the arrangement adopted is, for most part, scarcely more than a modification of existing classifications. Attention must be called to the indefiniteness of species and varieties of plums, due chiefly to the extreme responsiveness of the plants to environment. On each side of the specific or varietal types, there are wide ranges of variation. Since the relationships between types are often very close, it is impossible to avoid some confusion in characters, for outliers of the types cannot but overlap. It might be well said that these outliers are connecting links and that groups so connected should be combined but this would make specific division of the genus and varietal division of the species almost impossible. The groups must, therefore, be separated along more or less arbitrary lines, but such arbitrary separation does not prevent natural groups. If nature be broadly interpreted, the chief value of the work in hand lies in its discussion of varieties. In the descriptions, the aim has been to give as tersely as possible an idea of all the characters of the plums described. With very few exceptions, the technical descriptions of varieties are original and were made by those who have taken active part in the preparation of this book. Nearly all of the varieties have full descriptions grow on the station grounds, but whenever possible, specimens of each variety from different localities have been compared with those growing here. A special effort has been made to give us exactly as possible the regions in which the species and varieties of plums grow. Such an effort is made under the belief that this knowledge is of great value in the study of the factors which govern the distribution of wild and domesticated plants. If the boundaries of the regions in which a few scores of varieties of the several fruits grow can be accurately established, valuable generalizations can be drawn regarding life zones and plant distribution. The reader should know what considerations have governed the selection of varieties for colour plates and full descriptions. These are the known value of the variety for the commercial or amateur grower, the probable value of new varieties, to furnish data for the plum breeder, to show combinations of species or varieties, or new characters, 
or the range in variation. Some sorts have been described because of historical value, to better show what the trend of plum evolution has been. To indicate the relationships of species and varieties, the varieties are divided into three groups according to their importance as gauged from the standpoints given above. In botanical nomenclature, the code adopted by the American botanists in Philadelphia in 1904 and modified by the International Botanical Congress at Vienna in 1905 has been used. For horticultural names lacking a better code, the revised rules of the American Pomological Society have been followed, though in a few cases we have not seen fit to follow the rules of this society, as the changes required by their strict observance would have brought much confusion. Only those who have to work with a great number of varieties of fruit can know the chaotic conditions of our pomological nomenclature. One of the aims of the work in hand is to set straight in some degree the great confusion in plum names. All synonyms of varieties have been given so far as they could be determined but it did not seem worthwhile to give all of the references to be found, even in standard plum literature. Fewer of these are listed for the leading varieties than in the books on apples or grapes, which have preceded, only such being given as have been found of use by the writers or thought of possible use to future plum students. On the other hand, some references have been given for all varieties, a task not attempted in the grapes of New York. As in the preceding books, the colour plates have been given much attention. Work and expense have not been spared to make the plates the best possible with the present knowledge of colour printing. Yet the illustrations are not exact reproductions. The colours are, at best, only approximations, for it is impossible by mechanical processes to reproduce nature's delicate tints and shades. The camera does not take colours as the human eye sees them, and the maker of the copper plate cannot quite reproduce all that the camera has taken. The colours, then, depend on the judgement of the printer, who by selecting and mingling coloured inks reproduces as nearly as his materials permit the shades in his eye and mind. But no two persons see exactly the same colours in any object. So his conception may differ much from that of the horticulturalist or artist who saw the original plum, as do theirs from each other. Still it is hoped that the colour plates will be of great service in illustrating the text. All of the plums from which the plates were made came from the station grounds. The illustrations, with a few exceptions which are noted, are of life-size. As grown under the conditions existing at this place, and as far as possible, 
all are from specimens of average size and colour. Acknowledgements are due in particular to the plum growers of New York, who have furnished much information for the plums of New York, to numerous institutions in all parts of the United States who have loaned botanical specimens, to Professor Charles Sprague Sargent for advice, information and the use of the Arnold Arbutum Library and Herbarium, to W.F. White of the United States Department of Agriculture, who has given most valuable assistance in describing the species of plums and in giving their range to the station editor, F.H. Hall, who has had charge of proofreading, to Zeese Wilkinson and Company, New York City, for their care and skill in making the color plates, and to J.B. Line Company, Albany, New York, for their careful work in the mechanical construction of this book. Chapter 1. Edible Plums, the Genus Prunus. The great genus Prunus includes plums, cherries, almonds, apricots, peaches, and the evergreen cherries or cherry laurels. Its widely distributed species number a hundred or more for the world, nearly all of which belong north of the equator. The species of the genus are widely distributed in both the eastern and western hemispheres. For most part, the species of Prunus belong to the temperate zone, but several of the evergreen cherries, usually grouped in a section under Laurasiris, are found in the tropics and subtropics. The species cultivated for their edible fruits are found only in the temperate zone of the northern hemisphere. Of these, the peach and the almond are believed to have come from eastern and southeastern Asia. The apricot is thought to be a native of northern China. The wild forms of the cultivated cherries are Eurasian plants, very generally distributed in the regions to the northward, where the two continents meet. The habitats of the cultivated plums are given in detail in the text that follows, as Asia, Europe and America. Presumably the genus had its origin in some of the above regions, but where the centre is from which the species radiated can never be known. Indeed, with present knowledge, it cannot be said in which region Prunus has most species is most productive of individuals, or shows highest development and greatest variability. Facts which might give some evidence as to the origin of the genus. It is probable that the greatest number of combinations of the above evidences can be shown for Asia, and more especially, for the Eurasian region, where Europe and Asia meet. Yet North America has two score or more indigenous species, about half of which are aborescent. The history of the genus Prunus is one of continual changes. Of the botanists who have done most toward classifying plants, Ray, Tornafort, Delenius, and Borhave 
pre-Linnean botanists placed only the plum in Prunus. Linnaeus adopted the name used by his predecessors for the plum alone, for a genus in which he also placed plums and cherries. Addinson and Jussieu returned to the pre-Linnaean classification, but Gartner followed the grouping of Linnaeus, Necker, Decondoli, Roma and Decene held that the plum alone belongs in Prunus. Bentham and Hooker, Gray and his co-workers in the several revisions of his botany, and Engler and Prantle, great authorities of the 19th century, extend the genus to include all of the stone fruits. On the other hand, Britain and Brown, in their recent flora of northern United States and of Canada, restrict the group to plums and cherries. Horticulturalists have been less divided in their opinions than the botanists and have very generally placed all of the stone fruits in one genus. The diversity of views as to what plants belong in prunus indicated above suggests that the differences separating the several stone fruits may not be many nor very distinct. This is true, and makes necessary a discussion of the characters which distinguish these fruits. The flowers of true plums are borne on stems in fascicled umbels, and appear either before the leaves or with or after them. Flowers of the cultivated cherries are similarly born, though the fascicles are corymbose rather than umbelliferous. But apricot, peach and almond flowers are stemless or nearly so and solitary or born in pairs, appearing before the leaves. The fruits of plums and cherries are globular and oblong, fleshy and very juicy, with smooth or slightly hairy skins. Peaches, apricots and almonds are more sulcate or grooved than plums and cherries, and the first two have juicy flesh, but that of the almond is dry and hard or skin-like, splitting at maturity, thereby liberating the stone. These last three fruits are distinguished from plums and cherries, by having very pubescent or velvety skins, though rarely, as in the nectarine, a botanical variety of the peach, and in a few cultivated apricots, the skins are smooth. The stone of the plum is usually compressed, longer than broad, smooth or roughened, thickish and with an acute margin along the ventral suture, and thinnish or grooved on the dorsal suture. The stone of the cherry is usually globular, always much thickened, smooth or a very little roughened, rigid and grooved on the ventral suture, with a thin, scarcely raised, sharp margin on the dorsal suture. The stone of the apricot is similar to that of the plum, though thicker-walled, with a more conspicuous winged margin, and is sometimes pitted, 
the stone of the peach is compressed, usually with very thick walls, much roughened and deeply pitted. In the almonds, the stone resembles in general characters the peach stone, but all almond shells are more or less porous and often fibrous on the inner surfaces. The stone is the part for which the almond is cultivated and is most variable. The chief differences being that some have thick, hard shells and others thin, soft shells. The leaves of plums are convolute or rolled up in the bud. Cherry, peach, almond leaves are conduplicate. That is, are folded lengthwise along the midrib in bud, while the leaves of the apricot like those of the plum, are convolute. The manner in which the leaves are packed in the bud is a fine mark of distinction in stone fruits, in size and shape of leaves, as well as in the finer marks of these organs. The botanist and the pomologist find much to aid in distinguishing species and varieties, but little that holds in separating the subgenera. The last statement holds true with the floral organs also. The near affinity of the stone fruits is further shown by the fact that plums and apricots, plums and cherries, and the several species of each of the distinct fruits interhybridize without much difficulty. It is a fact well known that hybrids often surpass their parents in vigour of plant and in productiveness, and this has proved true with most of the hybrids in prunus, of which we have accounts, thereby giving promise of improved forms of these plants through hybridising. The great variation in wild and cultivated native plums is possibly due to more or less remote hybridity. Prunus is a most variable genus. This is indicated by the several subgenera, the large number of species and the various arrangements of these groups by different authors. At their extreme subgenera and species are very distinct but outside of the normal types and sometimes in several directions. There are often outstanding forms which establish well-graded connections with the neighbouring groups. For example, among the American plums, there are but few species between which and some other. There are not intermediate forms that make the two species difficult to distinguish under some conditions. There is also a wide range of variation within the species. The modifications within the species are oftentimes such as to change greatly the aspect of the plant. The tree may be dwarf or luxuriant, smooth or pubescent, may differ in branching habit, in leaf form in size and colour of the flowers, in the time of opening of leaf and flower buds, in colour, shape, size, flesh, flavour and time of ripening of fruit.
in the stone and in all such characters as climate, and soil environment would be liable to modify. This inherent variability is one of the strong assets of the genus as a cultivated group of plants, for it allows not only a great number of kinds of fruits and of species, but a great number of varieties. Besides, it gives to the genus great adaptiveness to cultural environment in accordance with climate, location, soil, and the handling of the trees. The cultivator is able to modify too the characters of members of the genus to a high degree in the production of new forms, but few, if any, groups of plants having produced as many cultivated varieties as prunus. The genus prunus is preeminent in horticulture, furnishing all of the so-called stone fruits, fruits which for variety, delicious flavour and beauty of appearance, probably surpass those of any other genus, and which, fresh or dried, are most valuable human foods. The seeds of one of the fruits belonging to Prunus, the almond, are commercially important, both for direct consumption and for the oil which is pressed from them. In India, a similar oil is obtained from the seeds of peaches and apricots, while in Europe, an oil from the seeds of the Mahaleb cherry is used in making perfumes. Various cordials are made from the fruits of the several species, as Kirschwasser and Maraschino from cherries, Jetsenwasser and Reiki from plums, and peach brandy from the peach. While fruits and seeds of the several species are soaked in spirits for food, drink and medicinal purposes, the bitter astringment bark and leaves are more or less used in medicine, as is also the gum secreted from the trunks of nearly all the species, and which, known as saracen, is used in various trades. The wood of all the aborescent species is more or less valuable for lumber, for cabinet making and other domestic purposes. Prunus is prolific also in ornamental plants, having in common to recommend them rapidity of growth, ease of culture, comparative freedom from pests and great adaptability to soils and climates. The plants of this genus are valued as ornamentals both for their flowers and for their foliage. Many cultivated forms of several of the species have single or double flowers, or variegated, coloured or otherwise abnormal leaves while the genus is enlivened by the evergreen foliage of the cherry laurels. Nearly all of the plants of prunus are spring-flowering, but most of them are attractive later on in the foliage, and many of them are very ornamental in fruit. Of all the stone fruits, plums furnish the greatest diversity of kinds, 
varieties to the number of 2,000 from 15 species are now or have been under cultivation. These varieties give a greater range of flavour, aroma, texture, colour, form and size, the qualities which gratify the senses and make fruits desirable, than any other of our orchard fruits. The trees too are diverse in structure, some of the plums being shrub-like plants with slender branches, while others are true trees with stout trunks and sturdy branches. Some species have thin, delicate leaves, and others coarse, heavy foliage. In geographical distribution, both the wild and the cultivated plum encircle the globe, in the north temperate zone, and the cultivated variety is a common inhabitants of the southern temperate region, the various plums being adapted to great differences in temperature, moisture, and soil in the two zones. The great variety of plums and the variability of the kinds, seemingly plastic in all characters, the general distribution of the fruit throughout the zone in which is carried on the greatest part of the world's agriculture, and the adaptation of the several species and of many varieties to topographical, soil and climatic changes make this fruit not only one of much present importance, but also one of great capacity for further development. Of the plums of the old world, the domesticas, insitias, and probably the trifloras have been cultivated for 2,000 years or more, while the work of domesticating the wild species of America was only begun in the middle of the last century. There are about 1,500 varieties of the Old World plums listed in this work, and since the New World plums are quite as variable, as great a variety or greater, since there are more species, may be expected in America. An attempt is made in the plums of New York to review the plum flora of this continent, but the species considered fall far short of being all the promising indigenous plums. Not only are there more to be described, but it is probable that species here described will in some cases be subdivided. The development of the pomological plum wealth of North America is but begun. Not nearly as much has been done to develop the possibilities of the European plums in America, as is the case of the other tree fruits. Probably a greater percentage of the varieties of Old World plums commonly cultivated came from across the sea than of the varieties of any other of the orchard fruits which have been introduced. Much remains to be done in securing greater adaptability of foreign plums to American conditions. Native and foreign plums are also being hybridised with very great advantage to pomology. 
The Plums of New York is written largely with the aim of furthering the development of plums in America, the possibilities of which are indicated in the preceding paragraph. With this end in view, the first task is to name and discuss briefly the characters of plums, whereby species and varieties are distinguished with a statement, so far as present knowledge permits, of the variability of the different characters. It is absolutely essential that the plum grower have knowledge, especially if he aspires to improve the fruit by breeding, of the characters of the plants with which he is to work. And that concludes tonight's reading. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this story, and I hope you're feeling somewhat drowsy. If you're not quite tired yet, please feel free to leave a comment in your podcast player of choice, as I'll be bringing a new episode to you very soon. Good night.